This week we're going to see a lot of attack ads that try to tear people down. This week some of the division in our country is going to be exposed, possibly like never before. In the midst of this, we are attempting to be a people that build others up. A, a place where we don't attack each other, but we encourage each other. So if you're with us for the first time today, we've been working through what I call some building blocks in learning how to be great encouragers. So today, my celebrity guest, Block Stacker, is none other than Jim Sanderson. Jim, would you come up here and join me? Hustle coach. I've always wanted to have the chance to say that. Sorry about that. All right. Let's start with the D. You guys welcome Jim. He's looking uncomfortable right now, okay? Start with the D over here. Okay, the D stands for what, church? Decide. You've got to decide that you're actually going to be an encourager. It's a command in Scripture. Now we need the L, which is look and listen. We talked about that last week. You begin to watch people. You listen to people. You try to catch them doing the right thing. Today we get to the I, and the I is include. A, a, a people that encourage are people who make sure that everyone feels welcomed and everyone feels accepted. And then we're going to start using a lot of the you, which is uplifting words. And by the time we get to Thanksgiving in a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about the top of all of this, which is the key. It's just to be positive. All right. Thank you. You, you did good, man. Very, very good. All right. You don't have to run any laps today. Great job. All right. So we're trying to learn how to build. And, and here's the beautiful thing about this. If we can learn how to be good encouragers, we're going to end up in what I call a win-win-win situation. The person you encourage will win. You will win, and your life will be more meaningful. And, and here's the cool thing. The kingdom of God will win. Now, today we have the honor to look at one of the greatest encouragers in history. In fact, he was such an encourager, the apostles gave him a nickname, Barnabas, all right? Now, Barnabas is sort of a secondary character, but the word Barnabas means encourager. His real name was Stephen. I understand that. My dad gave me the name Buddy when I was about a year and a half old, and it stuck. And Barnabas was such an encourager that it just stuck. Now, because he's sort of minor, sometimes we get him mixed up with other characters. Jeremy Swindle was telling me about a girl trying to encourage him when he was at Harding University, and she came up to him and was trying to tell him, what a great encourager he was. She said, you are such a Barabbas in my life. <laughs> well, that went over really well. So let's, we're going to look at about four snippets, four photos of, of Barnabas this morning. Please open your Bible, get on your phone. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to start, verses 36 and 37. Joseph, that's his name, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. A couple of things to note there in those verses. First of all, he's from Cyprus. That's a Greek island. That will be significant as we unfold this story. Second, he's not just generous with his words. He's generous with his money. Now, here's what I want you to see as we keep marching through Acts. He was a secondary figure, but he was extremely significant. In fact, as we walk through this, 
Barnabas is at some of the most pivotal moments in the Christian faith. Go with me to Acts chapter 9, because here's what Barnabas is going to do. He is going to help people feel included. You know, Americans are more divided now than ever before. George Gallup says, Americans are lonelier than any time in our history. We need someone who knows how to include, and Barnabas can teach us that. Look at Acts chapter 9. Now, here's what's going on in Acts chapter 9. Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church, the murderer of Christians, has become a Christian. And yet, can you imagine how scared people are about that? I mean, look at verse 36, you'll find out, 26, Acts 9. When Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him. Wow, can you imagine trying to join a church and they're so scared of you they close the doors? Uh, It would be like living in Iran today. Iran's a place where Christians are persecuted. Many Christians are are murdered. And let's say you're part of a a secret church in Iran. And and you hear this rumor that the Ayatollah Khomeini, the supreme leader of Iran, has become a Christian. And he's knocking on the door of your, your meeting. Anybody can say we better not let him in? Well, that's what's going on. If it weren't for our friend Barnabas, look at verse 27, but changes the whole passage. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Let's write down these things. Barnabas included Saul the persecutor. You can only imagine how scared people were. In Southern vernacular, we would say, I'm not touching Paul with a 10-foot pole, right? And yet Barnabas takes the risk to go out on a limb and include Barnabas, include Paul. And we know there's history. Paul becomes the great leader of the early church and a great apostle. Listen closer to me. There may not have been a Paul the apostle without the Barnabas the encourager. Who includes him. Now let's go to the next scene, Acts chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 19. The, the church has been scattered. Stephen has been martyred, and Christians are scattering out across the whole world. Look at verse 19. Now those who have been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word. Pay close attention to this. Only among the Jews. Okay, you can go preach it, but don't you dare tell these Gentiles about it. Then we see a turning point. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, that's Gentiles, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. But understand this, guys. The greatest controversy of the first century church is do we let Gentiles in the door? To this point, it had been pretty much a Jewish institution. Maybe people would call it a sect of the Jewish faith. And now things are beginning to change. And guess who's going to be in the middle of it? Our encourager Barnabas. Look at verse 22. News of this reached the church, the mother church in Jerusalem. And they sent, guess who? Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the grace, what the grace of God had done. He was glad, and guess what? 
he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Here's the description, the kind of man Barnabas was. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, taught a great number of people, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Second point here, Barnabas included Gentiles, the outsiders. Now remember what we said in the first passage we looked at. He's from Cyprus. He's grown up in a Gentile culture. He's the perfect person to build the bridge. He's also very wise. Because who does he recruit to come help him? His buddy Paul. He says, Paul, you come over here and let's minister together. Because Paul's the upfront, bold preacher. What, what is uh, Barnabas? He's the behind-the-scenes encourager. So together, the church explodes as they begin to preach the gospel. Now, our first point said there might not have been a Paul without a Barnabas. This one's even more important for you and I. There might not have been an us, Gentiles, without Barnabas. You see, if the faith had not spread to Gentiles, you and I wouldn't be meeting here today. We wouldn't know the good news of Jesus Christ. So go to the next picture, Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now, let me catch you up to speed here. After this scene we saw before, Paul and Barnabas had gone on what we called the first missionary journey, and it was extremely successful. Lots of folks became Christians. Lots of churches were planted. And Paul's got this super idea. Let's go back and encourage them some more. Let's go back and check on them. But we're about to have a big problem that literally is surprising that it's in Scripture. Look at verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Here's what happened. On the first missionary journey, in the middle of it, John Mark quit. And Paul can't get this out of his mind. And so when Barnabas says, oh, let's go back. And he said, let's take John Mark. Paul says, ain't no way. Not after what he did with us on that first journey. And it gets really sharp. Verse 39. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Guys, I don't know about you, but I sort of like this here. Two of the greatest men in the New Testament had a sharp disagreement. Christians have sharp disagreements. There are times where it is so sharp you have to agree to disagree and to walk away from it. And they did. Look what happens in the next verses. So um, they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and left, commended by believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So here's our next point. Barnabas included John Mark the deserter. Now, I guess I'm a little disappointed in Paul here. Is that okay? Because I think if I'm Barnabas, I say, dude, do you remember when no one would touch you with a 10-foot pole? Of all people to exclude someone, you should understand what it feels like. But Paul was pretty strong. 
pretty sharp disagreement. He would not do it. So they agree to disagree. Write this one down. There would be no John Mark. Listen to this. Listen closely. There would be no gospel of Mark if it weren't for Barnabas. I never recognized this insignificant character played such a great role. Man, what an incredible man. But, sort of sadly, there's a addendum. Barnabas doesn't always perform the way he claims to. So, I want you to look at what happens in Galatians chapter 2, verse 13, because Barnabas does exactly the opposite of what he's done so far. You ever done that? In Galatians 2, Paul's in Galatian, Galatia. Peter comes to visit. Everything's cool, man. Everybody's sitting around the table eating together and having a big time. And then some of the Judaizers, some of the Jewish folks who don't like Gentiles being Christians, walk into church and Paul distances himself. Pretty disappointing, Paul. And then look what happens. The other Jews join Paul in his hypocrisy. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So he messes up, but you got to say this. This guy is so good that when he messes up, they go, my goodness, even Barnabas messed up with the rest of them. Wouldn't you like to be known that way? Sometimes it's sort of shocking, you know? Well, let me illustrate it this way if I I can for a moment. Um, uh, Jim Sanderson was up here. He's one of my buddies. And one thing I really admire about Jim Sanderson is that he has never touched a drop of alcohol. Now, you know, I don't think it's sinful, but I'm, I'm telling you, I think that's a very wise stance to be. And so he's never dropped out, have a drop of alcohol. So, for instance, let's say Al and Connie Milligan throw a big party at their house. And there's just drinking everywhere. You know how Al and Connie are. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I mean, it's just going wild. And all of a sudden, we get a report on Sunday. There was a party at the Milligan's last night. All the kinds of people were drinking and getting drunk. Even Jim Sanderson. That's what it's like for Barnabas. Even Barnabas. So why is this guy such a great guy that even when he blows it, people are shocked? Let me give you some things I've seen here. Barnabas, number one, was sensitive. Now, some scholars believe that Barnabas, you remember his real name was Stephen? In Acts chapter 1, when they're choosing a replacement for Judas Iscariot, it's, it's between a guy named Stephen and who? Matthias. And Stephen's not picked. And many scholars believe that Stephen is Barnabas. So he's been in a place where he was rejected. And if you've ever been in those places where you're not, you've not been included or you've been rejected, you understand what it's like when someone needs it. You see, we've all had those people in our life that were sensitive to what was going on with us and included us. My older cousin, Keith Ellis, is here today. When I was a young teenager, he was five years older than me and already preaching. And he would take me to a little church called Centerpoint and point me and let me preach. He included me in something and it put me on that path. A story I always tell, and you may get tired of hearing this, is just a few years ago, many of you who work at Faulkner University know Elizabeth Smith, the late Elizabeth Smith. She was, ever since I moved to Montgomery, she was my friend. She'd come to Landmark every friend day. 
And right before she was about to die of her third battle with cancer, she called me up one day and she said, could, could we go to lunch? I said, sure. I said, I'll pick you up at your apartment. So I went over to Faulkner. I picked her up and, and we get it. Now, there was a local preacher's meeting that I used to 10 years ago. And I, I just for years had stopped attending it because I could tell, I'm not trying to be weird here, but they didn't really like me being there and I wasn't very comfortable being there myself. So I just, I just didn't go. It was just too uncomfortable. So I pick Elizabeth up and I say, Elizabeth, where do you want to go eat? She says, we are going to the preacher's meeting today. I said, no, we're not. Do you know Elizabeth Smith? We went. Okay? So she drags me in there. But she doesn't just drag me in there. She holds my hand the whole way to the table. And she sits with me and she holds my hand during the prayer. And I didn't really know. I thought, this is so weird, Elizabeth. Why are you doing this? Because normally I would go to those meetings and sit all by myself. It was not until I got in the car later I recognized this woman was a month from death. And before she died, she wanted those guys to know that she accepted me. I will never forget that. And you will never forget the person that was sensitive enough to what you were going through, that you were walking in a new office, that you were walking into a new church, that you were walking into a new school, and they made sure that you were taken care of. I used to say to my children, every day I dropped them off, look in your classrooms and find a kid that's being left out and do something with them. That's what Barnabas would do. Number two, Barnabas was willing to be second. Something really fascinating happens in the book of Acts. Again, he's the guy that includes Paul. And at the beginning, like Acts chapter 12, we have a list that says Barnabas and Paul. That's significant in Scripture. But by the time we get to chapter 14, the order has changed. And now it's Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas' leadership role has been supplemented by Paul. And now Paul is the leader. And here's what I love about Barnabas. He is cool with that. He's more comfortable being the secondary servant encourager than being the upfront man. And guys, if we're going to build people up and we're going to include people, because you, you need to be sensitive, but here's, here's the difference. You don't need to be self-sensitive, okay? Some people get hurt and they become self-sensitive. Everywhere they go, they're worried about how people are going to treat them if they're going to be excluded again. That's not Barnabas. Barnabas was other sensitive. He did not want what had happened to him to ever happen to someone else. And so everywhere he goes, he's willing to be secondary so that the spotlight can actually be on somebody else. And then here's the key to who Barnabas was. I hope you caught this while we're reading. Barnabas was full of the Spirit. This explains Barnabas to me. Because, guys, what, what, why did God give us the Holy Spirit? You can hear all kinds of debates about all kinds of things about the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me just simplify for, for you, okay? Why do you have the Holy Spirit? Here's the bottom line reason. The Holy Spirit is there to make you and me more like Jesus. That's what he's there for. He does all kinds of things. We might even debate about some of those things. But what he's there for is to make you like Jesus. And that is what's so interesting about Barnabas he's full of the spirit and we see not surprisingly he's like Jesus who's the greatest bridge builder who's the one who walked through all the walls even when people didn't like it who's the one who accepted Samaritans and Gentiles and you name it it was Jesus 
And Barnabas is so full of his spirit that he acts like him. So let me close with this. He practiced what I call risky inclusion. Because what if Paul had been an imposter? What if John Mark had quit again? Barnabas would have egg all over his face. But he was willing to take the risk to include someone else, even questionable people. That's what I love about Elizabeth Smith. She included even me. And honestly, that was risky to her reputation among her friends. I love when LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, was president of our country. He's a southerner. He's got an extremely racist past. And he risked his reputation to invite Martin Luther King to the White House. I can remember as a teenager taking a black friend of mine to a small church in Crenshaw County where my black friend was kicked out, so I was kicked out with him. When you begin to include people, everybody's not going to like it. They want to be with their club. They want to be with people just like them, even in church sometimes. But Barnabas was really willing to exercise risky inclusion, and let me say this, it was worth it. Can you imagine Barnabas's funeral? John Mark gets up and says, man, I just got to say something about my buddy Barnabas. I was a quitter. He had every reason not to believe in me. And he stood up even to Paul for me. And then a Gentile from Antioch says, you know, I kept hearing about this Jesus, but it was an exclusive Jewish club, and I was never going to get in that club. And then this guy Barnabas came around and said, you don't have to be a Jew to follow Jesus. And I've been following Jesus ever since, and my life is so much better. And then the guy that gave the longest part of the eulogy had to be Paul, who says, man, I gave my life to the Lord, and my background was so bad, people couldn't even believe it. The apostles didn't even want to fool with me until Barnabas stood up and brought me in the room and held my hand and said, this guy is for real. Here's our challenge today. Who's going to stand up at our funeral and say those kind of things about us? That's the chance we've got. So let's keep working on this. I want to invite Josh Roberts to the stage with me right now. And uh, I'm inviting Josh because um, Josh is just one of the greatest encouragers I've ever known. Um, and I- I've learned so much by, by watching him. We're going to make sure we're six foot apart, right? Yes, yes. You like it? Yeah. That doesn't sound very inclusive. We'll do our best. <laughs> we'll adapt, right? But, but let, me, let me say this. Josh was a member here at Landmark, worked out at Faulkner University. Uh, and, and just in those days, I didn't know Josh as well as I know him now, but I, I can still remember parking lot conversations where you encouraged me so much. And uh, then he moved to Lipscomb, and I've got some involvement at Lipscomb, so I actually probably had more time to spend with Josh. And so long distance, he just was like, man, things like, man, I, I just miss Landmark so much. I miss your preaching. I miss all this kind of stuff. I mean... Don't laugh at that. It's, it was for real, okay? Um, so, so he's just got that gift. In fact, you remember the quote I used last week? Uh, Mark Twain said, I can live for two months off a great compliment. On October the 7th, this man sent me a text. I'm still living on it three weeks later. It's just that powerful. Now, here's what's encouraged me, and I'm getting to Josh second, is when I talked to Josh about this, he told me it wasn't natural. 
I just thought this is a natural born encourager. He said, no. And so there was a couple of pivotal moments where he learned something that helped him. So, Josh, tell us about that moment 20 years ago. Yeah, I remember 20 years ago. I had a mentor, and he was, he was almost 70 then, and he's almost 90 now. And he, he sat me down, and he told me that, uh, he said, Josh, you're, you're just never going to learn to live well, to minister well, to love well, unless you have a clear understanding of what love is. And then he suggested a definition, and he gave me this definition. He said, love is the accurate estimation and adequate supply of another person's need. Uh, and he's a faithful guy, and so he said, let's test it against Scripture. So he said, how's this sound? Tell me if it sounds like the gospel. He said, God accurately estimated that Josh was broken, and he was in need of redemption. And he adequately supplied a rescue plan through his son. And that whosoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. He said, is that the gospel, Josh? And so it sounds like the gospel to me. And so he just said, try it. And um, what I've learned from that is two things. If we're going to love each other, there's this accurate estimation part, and that's relationship. We can't depend on other people to tell us what their needs are. We can't depend on our needs to always show up in the church bulletin or in emails or Facebook posts. We have to fight for relationships where we're sensitive enough and know what's going on in people's lives that God gives us the insight to accurately estimate what's going on. And then that adequate supply part, is that's about dying to ourselves. It's about putting someone else's schedule ahead of our own. It's about doing the things that make us feel uncomfortable. It's about supplying for someone what maybe you wouldn't want to or naturally do. So practically speaking, when I hear Jesus say, love one another, I think what he means is accurately estimate that that guy's lonely and adequately supply him with an invitation for dinner. You know, accurately estimate that that marriage isn't what it needs to be and adequately supply it with some conversations about how life is hard and some things are worth fighting for or accurately estimating that there are people that are hurting and adequately supply them with a shoulder or time or an ear and i think when jesus tells us to love as i have loved that's what he's talking about well, that's one of the best definitions of love i've ever heard i hope Stephanie, you've written that down for me because <laughs> that that is really really strong so that happened two decades ago then there was another pivotal moment a decade ago yeah, I, uh, so I, I've, I've committed my profession to helping young adults become adults. That's what working in education looks like most of the time. And I can uh, remember trying to do some, some research on why it seems like people are developing in the 21st century in ways that are just, there's just more roadblocks than it looks like there's ever been before. And so I, I kind of took a deep dive into some anthropology and some sociology and some social science. And one of the things that I discovered was that humans up until a few decades ago have been in communities where um, that community affirms and reflects the giftedness that God has equipped all of us with. That most of the time, uh, when a lot of us were growing up, when we had an issue with our car, we would call up our buddy that was really good with cars, and he'd help us figure it out. Uh, when we needed to make a cake for our kid's birthday, we'd call up the woman that had the best strawberry cake recipe, and she would share that, and we would grow. And um, and communities did a really good job identifying the way God has equipped people and gifted people with some special insight and then encouraging growth there. And one of the really, really big downsides of the internet, of, of social media, is that we don't do that as communities anymore. When I've got an issue with my car, I 
I go on YouTube. You know, when we want to have a special dessert, we look at the 100 best chocolate chip cookie recipes. We don't ask the person in our community that probably needs that help from all of us saying, you've got a real talent here. You know, even more sad, I think, when I have a low tank, so few times do I look to the people in my own life that God has given insight into my life. You know, I, I scroll the internet for Billy Graham quotes, right? Or Andy, I, I'm looking for ways to speak truth in my life that doesn't actually affirm the giftedness that God has equipped our communities with. And so that means that most of us find ourselves in communities where we've got all sorts of talent that hasn't been groomed. And we've got to be really active about looking at the people around us and telling them, I think God's given you some special insight. I think God's equipped you in a really unique way, and it blesses my life, and I just want to share that. Well, what, a, what a, an affirmation of the role the church should play in culture, that we can be in those kind of groups yeah. where we do know those things and lean on and affirm those gifts. Yeah. Uh, I, I should have mentioned at the beginning, um, Josh is the uh, assistant head of school at Alabama Christian <laughs> Academy. Now, I, I call him the vice president. Something like but, that. Um, <laughs> Josh, Josh is doing that and blessing so many of the children of this church and so many people who work there. But Josh, before I, I leave the stage, give us one practical piece of advice about becoming a better encourager. I, I, think, I think encouragement is a two-step process. And um, the first one is you just have to know what you like. I think that our culture equips us to, to be really critical and to be really cynical, and, and we get rewarded by flexing those muscles a whole lot, and sometimes we forget how much we have to work on identifying what we like. Those, those good, true, wholesome things, those things that reflect God's character. So first, we just have to have our eyes wide open to see what is good. And then secondly, we have to share it with the person that's responsible. Um, it's not enough for us to be blessed by it. We've got to keep that cycle going of telling somebody, well, the text that I sent you was nothing more than on a Sunday afternoon. I was sitting by myself, and I said, buddy did this thing that I liked. It blessed my life, and so I just wanted you to know that. And if we have eyes to see what's going on and the relationships that we have, just to tell someone, you did this thing, it was, you know, I, I liked the way that you stopped that meeting and answered that phone call from your wife. That touched me. I like the way that you spoke to your child, and I probably would have been angry, and you were really sensitive. I like the way that you put that post on Facebook and we're vulnerable. If we go that extra mile of saying, hey, you did this thing, I thought it was cool, and I wanted you to know, I think that's all encouragement is. Know what you like and share it with the person who's responsible. It's pretty simple. Thank yeah, you. that's right. We're now going to come to the part of our service that is the most inclusive thing that we do. It's just this incredible moment that symbolizes who we are and we're together. And I've asked Josh to share some thoughts as we prepare our hearts for communion. I think communion is one of the greatest gifts that our Lord ever gave his people. And if we think about it as a gift, that means there's a couple different ways that we can approach it. And I think for most of my life, I didn't approach it in the best way. I think when I fully understand how important a gift is, the magnitude of it, then how precious a gift can be, then, then my tendency is to put it on a shelf and to preserve it and to make sure that it doesn't get roughed up and that it maintains its character in the way that I received it. And so for me, when it came to communion, I read my Bible and I thought about that big painting that da Vinci painted of the Last Supper and I, for decades, tried to replicate 
the feeling and the emotions that I saw in that painting. And so I tried to approach communion as somber as I could be, as serious-minded as I could be. I tried to replicate that feeling of heaviness that the disciples must have felt that night. And there have been times that approaching communion like that really blessed my life, but a lot of the time I felt like it wasn't connecting the way that God wanted me to connect with this gift. And there's another way for us to show appreciation for a gift that's a little bit different than making it untouched on a shelf and keeping it in pristine condition. And if you've ever given a child a bicycle, then I think you know what I'm talking about. I remember a couple years ago when uh, Kristen and I were in Wetumpka and it was time for our oldest child to have a bicycle. And so uh, we did what every parent does. We went to Walmart. We figured out how we could make this thing work in our budget. We brought it home. uh, And we shared with him this gift that he was so excited to receive. And we let him know. We reminded him that he couldn't buy it for himself, that he didn't have that kind of money. This is the nicest thing he had received and that, frankly, like, we had to work uh, pretty creatively with our budget to make sure that he could have it. We gave him a helmet. We reminded him that this was the kind of gift that if he wasn't careful, he could hurt himself. In fact, if he wasn't really careful, he could hurt others, too. And then we explained to him that this is the kind of gift that's going to change who you hang out with going to change where you go. It's going to change your worldview. That no longer is your world limited to the couple people that you can see when you're on our porch. No longer are your boundaries the sidewalk and the street lamp. And then we watched. And we were looking carefully to see if he took the magnitude of this gift and that he responded by carefully wheeling it through the living room and into his bedroom and leaning it up against a wall and keeping it in pristine condition, or if he did what we hoped he would do and tear off through the garage and start wearing the tread off the tires. For a long time, the plates would get passed for communion, and I could imagine Jesus asking me, Josh, are you serious enough this morning? Are you somber enough this morning? And I felt like that's what I was being judged on, and I really tried to please Jesus in those moments. But for a while now, I've imagined Jesus asking me a new set of questions. Josh, has my spirit through you led you to people that you wouldn't ordinarily be with? Has my spirit through you led you to places you wouldn't ordinarily go? Has my spirit through you expanded your worldview in a way that makes you uncomfortable? Has it drawn boundary lines where I want them, not where you want them? I feel like Jesus asked me these days, Josh, are you wearing the tread off the tires? Let's pray. God, this gift that we celebrate, we could not attain for ourselves. And we praise your name because out of your goodness, you made a way where we could not. And Lord, we know that you didn't give us this gift so that we could be who we are right now, but so that we could grow. 
so that it would change how we see the world, so that it would change how we see you. And as we take this bread and as we drink this juice, Lord, we ask that you give us ears to hear your voice. May we hear you ask us, has your spirit alive in us, reconciled to our creator, changed our worldview? Has it changed who we hang out with? Has it changed where we go? Lord, we know that you are the includer that our brother Jesus Christ declares that all who claim your name are spotless. That regardless of our history, of our past, that all who call on the name of the Lord are saved. And Lord, in this moment, we pray that you give us the ability to see your true plan, that the good news is for all and that you've equipped us to share it. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.